one constant throughout all the years Ray has been baseball. America's rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt, and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. Welcome to another edition of the Narrative First Podcast, the weekly podcast where story is always king. I am your host, Jim Hall, the voice of Narrative First, and this is episode number 36, James Bond is not the antagonist. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another rousing round of story structure and story analysis. Hope you had a great week of writing. Perhaps you learned a little bit more about Dramatica, you have some questions, and hopefully this podcast will give you a better idea of how Dramatica works and how you can use it to write better stories. This week has been another busy one here at Narrative First. Since it's the start of baseball season here in America, decided to do Field of Dreams for the Through Line Thursdays this week. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a film from 1989, stars Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones. Baseball fantasy about a farmer who plows through his cornfield in order to build a baseball diamond. Now, I absolutely love this film when it first came out. Uh, it's got a great soundtrack by James Horner, who is one of my favorite composers of all time. And it was always an example that I used in classes for a steadfast start character. If you've seen the film, the big line is, if you build it, he will come. And there's a voice that keeps telling uh, Ray, which is the Kevin Costner character, to continually do new things. He keeps doing everything that the voice tells him to do, but he never quite figures out the purpose for it. And it isn't until the end when he finally realizes what he was doing. So he never truly changes his resolve. In fact, the whole message of the story is him you know, holding on to that resolve and staying steadfast, and he ends up changing uh, Terrence Mann, who is his influence character in the story. But that was about as far as we had ever gone with analyzing Field of Dreams. I just knew that he was a steadfast character and that he was a start character. When it comes to a steadfast main character and you combine that with the main character growth, you can either have a steadfast stop character or a steadfast start character. And the shorthand that they use in the theory book is uh, the main character is either holding out for something to stop or holding out for something to start because they see the change in the world around them. So in Field of Dreams, he's not holding out for something to stop. It's not like he's constantly barraged by evil forces. It's not like Braveheart, where William Wallace is holding out for England to stop being a little bit bossy. <laughs> he's more holding out for something to start. So he's plowing through his cornfield. He's picking up these strangers. He's trying to help them as best he can. And he's like, what's in it for me? You know, that's his big line at the end. I want to know what's in it for me. That line, however that goes, that is him acting as a steadfast start character. But that was about as far as we had ever gotten with any kind of official analysis of the film. And that was the case until a couple of years ago when we decided to do an online group analysis of the film. Way back when, Google Plus was a thing, and in my estimation, it was going to be the place to go for online discussion. So I ported everything over from the Convor site, which is a site that I had started about two to three years prior, which I thought was a great tool for discussing Dramatica, and seemed to have a high level of interaction, better than your typical forum, and was more attractive to look at. But eventually it folded and went under. And at the same time, Google Plus arrived, and I thought this was going to be the perfect replacement. So I convinced everybody to move over, ported everything over to that, and of course, two to three years later, Google Plus <laughs> is a complete waste. Luckily, at that time, I also discovered Discourse, 
So I created an instance of discourse on discuss.dramatica.com. And if you want any kind of discussion, that to me is the place to go. Unfortunately, it leaves a lot of room for certain people to leave extended long posts, Mike Lucas. And the quality of conversation surrounding Dramatica has increased exponentially. And of course, it's great to look at. And so eventually what I'm going to do is go through Google Plus archives and the Convor archives and port over all the different posts. I'm going to start out with Field of Dreams and see if I can find a nice, quick, and easy way to do that and bring that over. So you'll be able to find them all in one place at discuss.dramatica.com. But for now, the online analysis that we did of Field of Dreams, someone suggested, I believe it was Wollager, who's a Dramatica story expert, who suggested doing Field of Dreams and trying to figure out what the actual story form for it is. And it was really surprising how it all turned out at the end, and it was probably one of the best online group discussion analysis that we ran. And so I'll leave a link in the show notes to that discussion on Google+, and you'll be able to go in there and follow through. And I structured it pretty much like the Dramatica users group meetings that we do once a month on the second Tuesday of every month, where you start out figuring out the four through lines, and then you go to the character dynamics and the plot dynamics, and then you go to uh, the theme browser and try to pinpoint the concern, issue, and problem for each through line. And it, it worked out great, and I feel like the story form that we found was really strong and explained perfectly the source of conflict in each through line. So I'll link to that online discussion and also link to the official dramatic analysis on dramatica.com. <laughs> interesting about the film is the alignment of domains in the story. If you remember for Dramatica, the four through lines are really just perspectives on the central inequity in the story. So you have an inequity that is created that upsets the balance of things and then you take a look at that inequity from four different angles. So you look at it from the main character perspective, you look at it from the influence character's perspective, you look at it from their relationship, what the conflict looks like within their relationship, and also you step back and you look at what the conflict looks like for everybody in the overall story through line. And the reason for that is you want to see a context for I, you, we, and they. And because in real life we only get three of those, we either get I, you, and we, or we get you, we, and they. The reason why people love stories so much is they get all four. And so you can simultaneously be inside someone's shoes and be outside of someone's shoes. And you'll be able to better determine where the source of the problem is. That's the whole point of story, and that's why stories that have all those four through lines feel more complete, because they're addressing the entire argument. They're looking at it from all sides, and they're not trying to put one over on you. They're not trying to sneak something by you. It's not any kind of propaganda. It's really trying to argue a particular approach to solving a problem. So in Dramatica, it sees problems as either being uh, fixed or in a process, or fluctuating would be another word, and also internal or external. And then you get four different categories of where you can find problems. You can either find them in a, f a fixed external state or a fixed internal attitude, a fluctuating external process like an activity, or a fluctuating internal process like a manner of thinking. And those four domains are situation, activity, manner of thinking, and attitude. And what you do is you find the perfect combination of those four perspectives and you apply them to those four different domains and that way the story covers all the bases, which is great when you talk about Field of Dreams. See? 
because it's covering all the bases. It's a baseball analogy. But the really interesting part about Field of Dreams is where those through lines fell in the domains. You know, typically, the main character is in a situation. Their influence character has a fixed attitude. Uh, their relationship is about changing the manner of thinking, usually in the main character. And then the overall story is an activity. That's like pretty much all of Western civilization. That's what they love. That's Every story is pretty much in there. But for Field of Dreams, they flipped it around in such a way that it, it contributes and adds to the fantasy aspect of it by presenting a genre that's very unique in American cinema. Dramatica looks at genre not as, you know, romantic comedy or war movie or action-adventure. It's more about the personality of the story. Melanie has some great articles that she republishes occasionally about the personality of a story, uh, and that's where genre is. That's where at the top. So, you know, the particular alignment of the through lines to the different domains will give you a different personality. So that one that I described before, the main character and situation, overall story, and activity, that has a very distinct personality that you've seen over and over and over again. In Field of Dreams, the overall story is in situation, and the main character is in manner of thinking, which is a very, very unique uh, way of looking at cinema. I'm off the top of my head, I think uh, Shawshank Redemption is the only other story I can think of right away that fits that same sort of combination where everybody's dealing with a fixed external situation or they're stuck somehow and, you know, they're in jail, they're in Shawshank, and then the main character is dealing with some kind of dysfunctional thinking. So Red in Shawshank Redemption is very much, you know, uh, you know, he's institutionalized. He just goes along with what everybody says, and every plan he has, every thought he has is basically like, how can I just keep myself out of trouble? And that's his problem, and he has to figure out how to actually, you know, basically stand up for himself. With Field of Dreams, Ray has a dysfunctional manner of thinking because he's trying desperately not to become his father. Anything he can do to avoid that, anything, you know, trying to figure out where he fits in in his life and with everything that he's been through is essentially his main character through line, his personal journey. And with the overall story and situation, everybody's dealing with some kind of, you know, fixed external situation. Create a place for ghosts to appear and suddenly ghosts appear in your cornfield and now everybody wants to come visit you. So, I mean, everybody there is trying to get over some kind of uh, past hurt, something that's haunting them that they need to kind of work through and... The cornfield there in Iowa is the perfect place for it. And if you remember that whole discussion about Steadfast Start that we just talked about previously, when you have the overall story in situation and the main character in uh, manner of thinking or psychology, that gives you a vertical relationship in the table of story elements. And when you have a vertical relationship like that, you know, situation is in the upper left-hand corner and main character is in the lower left corner, uh, when one is on top of the other, that creates a start growth. So that's always great when you can always reconfirm, you know, your original thought, like, okay, well, I believe he feels like a start character. Start and stop are very difficult to kind of determine in a story because, you know, it's like six half, one dozen of the other. It's like, wait, when does something stop and when does it start? But if you have a general idea, when you go into the domains and if you start to assign them, if they end up being in the correct alignment in order to give you that growth, then you know you're on the right track. So when we went through the online analysis, if we had somehow put Kevin Costner's character in activity, that would have been a horizontal relationship between main character and overall story, and that would have created a stop character. But he's clearly not a stop character. It's not like he's beset by all these evil demons that he has to overcome. He's very much in a start, and it creates a very positive feeling to it. You know, it's a very, you know, 
the direction is in a, a positive place. I believe start... I can never remember this, even though I wrote a huge article. I believe start good... No, no, start good is positive. Yes. So I believe surmountable. Remember that article from way back when? Already forgotten it. Uh, yeah, I believe, you know, all the troubles that he runs into, they're very surmountable. Like, he feels like he can get over it. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so that it gives a very positive feeling to the film, which is great because it's supposed to be a light baseball flick that's just about, you know, getting past your, your haunts. And then the influence character, James Earl Jones' character, Terrence Mann, is an author who's supposed to be like a popular author from the 60s that everybody went to 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 kind of, you know, figure out where, you know, what they're supposed to do. Peace, love, dope! (laughs) That thing. (laughs) That would be my Terrence Mann impersonation. Ooh, I liked my Michelle Williams better. But his activities are what challenge Ray. So when you look at the through line, you know, when you set up those domains, the influence character is always diagonally opposed to the main character. So with Ray in psychology or manner of thinking, that puts Terrence in activity, which again is not a very common setup. I mean, usually the the influence character is all about their attitude. And while Terrence has attitude, that's really not where he has the most impact. The most impact he has is the kind of things he does. You know, like Ray can't understand why somebody who is so popular and such an important voice for America, why he would simply disappear. And, you know, Terrence has his own thoughts on that. And it's a great, not correlation, but it's nice for him to have uh, Terrence to deal with because, uh, spoiler alert for Field of Dreams, he can't really interact with his father until the very end. And so Terrence kind of fills that gap and has an explanation for, you know, if someone's looking at someone and doesn't quite understand why they do the things they do. That's kind of why he uh, was estranged from his father. The misunderstanding there. If you can have somebody that can represent that or present that perspective that that could be there if he was engaged with his father throughout the narrative, that answers the, the reason why you have the narrative and why they're going through that so that he can heal that relationship. But he does it with Terrence because Terrence kind of matches... Uh, the problem that he had with his father. And of course, the relationship story, they're able to work that out with the fixed attitudes. It's not, and I, I think I was t- speaking about this on DiscussDramatica.com, maybe two, three years ago, I started to uh, work with people with the Dramatica Mentorship Program. My biggest, I guess you call it discovery, it's not really discovery, but the part I got most excited about was when I started to think of the relationship story through line not as main character versus impact character, which is what it used to be at one time. But when I thought of it more as their relationship and I thought of the relationship as an actual character, you can actually get into the emotional part of it. So you think of the codependency between the two people, the dependency, you know, one relying on the other, whether or not they're splitting apart or coming together. It's not really like I have this point of view and you have this point of view and he has a fixed attitude about baseball and he has a fixed attitude about work and together they... they get into conflict with each other. That really goes nowhere. That's pretty much the effects of a fixed attitude, but that's not really where the fixed attitude problem is coming from. It's more like a, a state of mind that that their relationship represents. Like the relationship itself is deficient or dysfunctional because of that state of mind between the two. So it's not really like I'm against you. If, if When you're writing out suffer, you're working through your own story. If you can think of the relationship story as a character, I found that to be the most uh, impressive and the biggest leap that you'll find in the story. 
it's very difficult to write and to wrap your head around that if you can just feel it and use it as kind of the inspiration and motivation for the work that you do I think you'll find a great improvement in the storytelling or at least the the structure of the story not not so much the storytelling but at least the the structure and you know the purpose of, of what it is that you're trying to to tell so I'll leave a link to that in the show notes but you know looking at the the through lines of field of dreams it's great because it's the first one i think now i've done 16 of these uh, it's just a nice easy way I, I know it's the same sort of information but it's always good to see it from all different kinds of angles i guess different perspectives and just to be able to see that overall story and main character how the, those are lined up gets you a very different feeling i think actually probably platoon platoon is another one that is set up like this where the overall story is all about the state of war in Vietnam, and then Charlie Sheen's character is in psychology, and Barnes, Barnes is in activity, and of course, you know, the state of mind between the two of them is in conflict, which also means Yellowbirds is the same way, which will probably be a film that you hear about later on this year. does it for baseball talk and field of dreams the other thing i did this week i'm all about cleaning up old posts i'm doing the spring cleaning and narrative first is i realized that the short two-minute clip of uh, successful arguments was not attached to the vault post a story is an argument and i was teaching story at the california institute of the arts i went there for the character animation department a couple decades ago I'm not that old, and so it was really exciting for me, I think, let's see, is it 2006, 2007? Not sure what year I started, maybe it was 2008, but I taught there for eight years, and I taught a second-level story. Didn't want the freshmen, I wanted the, the second years, because they're always more interesting. Storytelling's way better, because <laughs> you have more time. Uh, freshmen make a one-minute film, and sophomores make a two-minute film. I tried seniors, I went. I tried the fourth year, and that was just a disaster, because everybody's pretty much given up by then. So I went back to second year, and that's where the greatest energy is amongst the students. And one of the most exciting parts for me, or the most fun parts, was putting together montage videos to help explain Dramatica. I mean, I essentially taught Dramatica for the first semester, and then the second semester was essentially a user's group analysis every week. And it's really, it worked out really great, and had super talented students in there, and a lot of them are in very influential positions in the animation industry now, which is super rewarding for me. But one of those videos was uh, Successful Arguments, where I took clips from Shawshank Redemption and Fight Club and Pinocchio and, of course, Sixth Sense, and put them together to kind of give an idea of what it was we would be discussing over that first semester, which is writing a story that argues a particular position. Uh, CalArts Every single film was pursuit and avoid because, you know, when you're 20, you want to, you're pursuing something and you're pursuing your dream. And then at the end of the school year, you just want to avoid and run away. So, you know, in a two minute film, they would always do the quad with pursuit and unavoid. Oh, I'm sorry, pursuit and avoid. And of course, control and uncontrolled. That would be the, the self-interest quad there, which is everybody's favorite. So I presented some other arguments 
uh, you know, Shawshank Redemption was arguing for the idea that hope springs eternal in different seasons. The Stephen King book where Shawshank Redemption was found. Fight Club argues for anarchy and mutual self-destruction. Funny thing is, we don't have a concrete story form for that. I believe it was scheduled on 9-11. You know, it's the second Tuesday of every month, so uh, 9-11 was supposed to be Fight Club, and I don't believe we ever finished uh, working on that. We should probably do that, actually, as an online analysis. Let me write that down. Uh, but obviously, there's there's some kind of argument being made there. Not not a particularly happy one, but at least you can see that you don't always have to argue for positive things. You can argue for negative things as being a positive thing. You know, while they're watching the... The buildings crumble and fall to the ground. They're holding hands because they've finally found peace with each other. Uh, Pinocchio, I originally uh, put in there that it's arguing for following your conscience, which is somewhat true, but then when I did the uh, analysis at the Dramatic Users Group for Pinocchio, I actually led that one. I led the Shawshank Redemption one, which was really exciting, and I also did the Pinocchio one, and I was surprised to find, I thought for sure, conscience would be the solution, you know, temptation would be the problem, but it turns out those are the symptom and response, and it was mainly, it was control and uncontrolled. Control was the problem, you know, essentially being controlled by the puppet master and doing what everybody's telling you to do, as opposed to the freedom at the end, that's the actual solution. And then the sixth sense was always great, I mean, I've probably beaten the example into the ground by now. But arguing that uh, how you see things is not always how things really are. And that when you actually look towards how things really are and kind of step outside of yourself, you'll actually find some kind of resolution and peace. When you're looking at the story form for Dramatica, it's not so much trying to tell you uh, what it is you should be writing in each signpost or each act. You know, it's not uh, paint by numbers. It's basically you, what's the number you want to present what's the message you want to say what what is it you want to actually offer or broadcast to the audience and then dramatic says well okay here's your story form here's the message that you want to say or here's the argument you want to make now just make sure you get all the pieces in the right place and people will understand what it is you're trying to say so you might want to check that out uh it i will leave a link to the blog post this week which then of course links to a story is an argument and you will see the whole point of the dramatic story form Let's talk about James Bond, the antagonist. Whoops. <laughs> okay, I just pulled it up, and it looks like the person completely struck out his entire... <laughs> the funniest thing I've ever seen. Acting power, who's super brilliant when it comes to Dramatica. He asked a question about James Bond, the antagonist, and he went through the whole thing and struck it out and put, well, never mind, which <laughs> is great. Uh, so funny. Um... Yeah, so this was this week. Uh, it comes up a lot because Melanie, who is the super brilliant mind behind Dramatica and, you know, is untouchable when it comes to concepts of narrative and the story mind, put out this idea that James Bond is the antagonist because uh, often the bad guy is pursuing something and the antagonist is trying to prevent it. And so the bad guy's pursuing and then James Bond comes along to try to prevent and that's super confusing because then you start to think like, well, nothing means anything and I'm so confused and Dramatica doesn't work and how can I tell what context is what? And 
it's extremely, uh, it's confusing and frustrating for somebody new to the theory. At first, it's exciting because you feel like you've you've discovered something that nobody knows about story, and it's like, oh look, he's actually the antagonist. And then people are like, what are you talking about? Because they have a very limited, narrow version of the idea of protagonist and antagonist, where the protagonist is the one, you know, the good guy, and the antagonist is the bad guy. And you really need to look at where the inequity begins where it actually starts and you know when that inequity hits at the beginning what is the goal to resolve that so regardless of whether or not the bad guy is pursuing something and the and you from another perspective you need to be very clear about your overall story perspective so let's say the bad guy does something he blows up a building or robs a bank or whatever and then like okay let's just say Let's use not James Bond. Let's use Dark Knight and uh, the Joker and uh, 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 what's his name? <laughs> Bruce Wayne. Batman, right? Uh, so, yeah, he he robs the bank. He's, he's trying to pursue anarchy, right? I guess you could say from this perspective. And then Batman's trying to prevent him. That's not really what's happening. It's the resolution of uh, chaos and anarchy coming to Gotham is a... a problem now now who's pursuing the resolution of that problem okay batman is and then joker is trying to prevent the resolution of that problem that's how you figure out who the protagonist and the antagonist is and most often more often than not the good guy quote-unquote good guy is the protagonist and the bad guy is the antagonist now occasionally that flips around which is a a true thing michael clayton is a great example of this where uh, the Tilda Swinton character, she's not necessarily a really nice person. <laughs> she makes a couple phone calls that aren't really nice. Like, there's probably other ways you could resolve that. And she's the one pursuing, you know. So the the inciting incident or the story driver is, what's his name, going off his meds and going crazy. All right, so how are you going to resolve that? She's the one trying to resolve, bring a, a successful resolution to that. And then the George Clooney, Michael Clayton character, he's pretty much acting like an antagonist. You know, he's trying to go in there and, and uncover, you know, he's trying to fulfill his client's request, but along the way he's actually preventing her from get, seeking that uh peaceful resolution and so there you have a clear case of where is the inequity you find the inequity then you look at the goal and once you find that story goal then that's how you determine who's pursuing and who's avoiding and there the main character there is an antagonist the other example which i'm really super proud of figuring out or uh, that i was really excited about was uh, hiccup in how to train your dragon Uh, i went in and started to i actually was an animator on the the film and animated a bunch of scenes of Hiccup and absolutely loved working on the film because it's so nice to work on a film when it's got a great story and it actually had a great story from the beginning or at least the beginning of when they started and that was a really really fun film to work on because it's just great when you've got a great narrative behind you when you get the narrative first right so that's where that name came from Uh, towards the end of the production I wrote three articles where I started to talk about the I think I began with the signposts Somewhere along the way, I realized that it was not a success ending, it was a failure ending. And it had a very bittersweet feeling to it. And it was clear that Hiccup ends up in a good place. So in order to get a bittersweet feeling, you actually have the opposite sort of positive or negative value in the story outcome. So if you have the main character uh, judgment of good, then you would have an 
overall story outcome of failure. So you would have failure good. So the bittersweet endings are either failure good or success bad. And I'll leave a link. I did another series of articles called Meaningful Endings where I developed a, a bunch of montage clips, clip montages, uh, again, for CalArts students, showing uh, the difference between a triumph, uh, personal triumph, which is the failure good, uh, personal tragedy, which is the success bad, and the tragedy, which is failure bad. And that was always fun to end on, because I got to do seven, which is great. What's in the box? You lie! <laughs> Have I done that one yet? I think I did already. Um, sorry, I have to humor myself occasionally, speaking about Dramatica to myself. Um, so in those articles, I spoke about how Hiccup is the antagonist. And when you follow the logic where, you know, the original inequity is, uh, the dragons destroy their hometown. And then it's like, okay, we need to resolve this. How are we going to resolve this? Hiccup is not pursuing the resolution. His dad, Stoic, is. And he's the one who's trying to train the next generation of dragon hunters. Hiccup ends up preventing that. Or not preventing it so much as avoiding it. He's trying to avoid you know, killing dragons anymore. And so that's why when he succeeds at the end, it's like, well, but wait, you succeeded, but it was kind of a failure. And that is where you get the failure good and the bittersweet. So you can occasionally have quote-unquote good guys. I mean, there's really no good guy in How to Train Your Dragon. I mean, there's a clear bad guy, that big giant dragon, but you notice that big giant dragon doesn't come till the end, and he's really not part of the narrative. He's just there to create instances of places where Hiccup and his dad can get into conflict. He's not really there from the beginning, uh, antagonizing things. So if you can just look for the inequity resolution creation moment and see who's the one actually trying to resolve it, that's how you can actually find who's the protagonist and who's the antagonist. That's the problem when you have a lot of theoretical thinking, but you don't actually put it into practice and you actually see exactly like, oh, okay, this is how it's supposed to play out or oh, this is actually how it works out, which is why I do all the through lines and all the analysis and all the podcast discussions because it helps solidify in my mind and hopefully in other people's minds how the theory can actually be used in a practical way. So when you put out there that James Bond is the antagonist, it creates all sorts of problems like the James Bond dilemma post here on Discuss Dramatica. And Lunar Dynasty, who apparently is a bear... I'm not sure who that is. Actually, I think it's Brant Moon is who it is. Uh, he's got a great line in here, uh, which is essentially what I was trying to say, which I'm going to use all the time now. Uh, he says, uh, we get into trouble explaining Dramatica when we put the cart before the horse. In other words, if we let pursuit versus avoid lead the discussion, we're going to tie ourselves in knots, and then our would-be listeners will cry foul when we suddenly remember that the story goal defines these things, which is absolutely true. So it's the story mind that's the most important thing. All right, story and narrative, they're, they're not really people, they're not characters, and they're not pursuing, and they're not avoiding. The context is the story mind, which is the, the analogy of a mind, a single human mind trying to solve a problem, and then you're just using character, plot, theme, and genre to describe those thought processes that go on in the mind. So you first have to establish what that story mind is looking at, and then you can attach the characters on top. So again, Brant leaves a step-by-step -step process, which I'm basically just going to crib, which is step one, you have a narrative world at rest, a house of cards full of dramatic potential energy. Yes, but at rest. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's at rest. So let's just say it's it's what the table of story elements looks like uh, in the chart in dramatica.com slash downloads. Uh, then an inequity appears and everything's out of order. So that's when 
all the things get twisted up according to the different dynamic choices. You twist that Rubik's Cube of story up, and now you've got all this massive potential. The story goal arises to restore order. So as you twist everything up and you determine where the inflection points of conflict are, it will determine where the story goal is. That's where the resolution is going to be. And then, then step four, you can talk about pursuit, avoid, and the whole lot. That is great. Fantastic. So I will leave a link to my own James Bond article. James Bond? James Bond article. And, of course, to the James Bond dilemma here at discuss.dramatica.com. And if you have any questions about that, of course, always write to narrativefirst.com slash contact. Lastly, we have this week's article on tension in three-act structures. It looks like the structure of what I'm doing is I introduce uh, a particular way of looking at tension uh, within a certain number of acts within a narrative. So I started with two acts, and then the following week I kind of elaborate on that two acts. Last week was three acts, where I talked about witness. And this week I explore three acts further by looking at LA Confidential, Election, and Sideways. The reason why I chose LA Confidential and Election is because they have the same exact story goal, uh, obtaining, which is achievement, uh, which is, the you know, as I described earlier, that's usually where you find the overall story is an activity, as opposed to witness from the week before where the overall story was in a, a deplorable situation. You know, it's like this kid had seen something that he should never have seen, and now the, the worlds were colliding. Here it's more about accomplishment, right? So LA Confidential, will they be able to stop police corruption in LA, uh, the Los Angeles Police Department, and then in election, will Tracy Flick, you know, achieve monumental success? Again, there's another place where the influence character is a protagonist. Ooh, I'm going to have to add that to the list. So both films are about accomplishment, but they're very different genres from a... Actually, they're both different genres in a dramatic perspective because the main character in Election is a doer and the main character in LA Confidential is a beer. I believe that's true. But more so, you know, one is a cop drama, corrupt cop drama, and the other one is, you know, a silly independent uh, student versus teacher drama. So I thought it'd be fun to juxtapose the two of them, especially since it's very interesting because... Uh, L.A. Confidential is a personal triumph. It's a failure good story. And Election is a personal tragedy story. So you would think, if, as you've probably heard before, the different dynamic choices which the story outcome and story judgment are a part of, when you change those around, you're going to get a different act order in the signposts, and you're going to get uh, different static plot points. It's going to change based on you know, whether or not it's story outcome of success, story outcome of failure, action-driven story, decision-driven story, doer, beer, all that stuff, you know, works together. So you'd think, okay, well, one's a failure good and one's a success bad. They're going to have different plot points. They're going to have, you know, not the same requirement, prerequisites, and consequences, but they actually turn out to have the same exact ones. Both LA Confidential and Election have a story requirement of doing, a story prerequisite of being, and a story consequence of becoming, and all those mixed together with a story goal of obtaining. So why are they the same? 
The interesting part is, and this is why election feels so weird, is because Jim McAllister is a holistic problem solver. Usually you don't have holistic problem solvers uh, in a male body. Usually it's pretty much linear. Well, I wouldn't say usually. I would say prior to 1994, you would have linear inside of a male character and holistic inside of a female character. But 94, which, oh, strangely enough, is when Dramatica came out, that's when you were able to see uh, Jumbled Up, where you have holistic thinkers inside of male bodies and linear thinkers inside of female bodies. I mean, you'd have it occasionally, but it seems like lately and through the turn of the century, they mix it up more and more because you get a really strange feeling to it. And it's a really great way to explore different approaches to solving problems. So in LA Confidential, it's very straight down the line. It's linear male, cause and effect. Let's track down the clues and, and stop the corrupt police officers before it's too late. And in election, it's all about balance. How can I shift the balance between things to really uh, F up Tracy's ambitions and Tracy's dreams? And so, you know, he tries his very best there. So because the two of them have the different uh, main character problem-solving styles, that's why the static plot points end up being exactly the same. And you get kind of the same sort of feeling to it, where in LA Confidential, the Act 1 tension leading to the Act 2 tension is, you know, will Ed Exley, which is the Guy Pierce character, and Bud White, which is the Russell Crowe character, will they be able to be able to get along as partners? You know, their being, their state of being. Will they be able to pretend to be friends long enough in order to be able to stop police corruption? And then the Act 2 tension, the dramatic tension, will is will the two of them track down the officers behind the Night Elmers? This is where they actually do all the stuff they need to do. It's not necessarily throwing them in jail, but tracking down clues, you know, figuring out who is, you know, who's behind it all. That's the doing. But they can't do that until they first, you know, pretend to be friends, and then they do the doing, and then finally the last tension is where you get becoming, which is will the two of them be killed? Now this is interesting. Becoming, which is the original terminology for that concern, that type level concern in Dramatica, has been updated to be changing one's nature. So that's a different way of thinking of becoming. So whereas being is basically a temporary state, like can we be friends, can we be partners, the becoming is to completely change your essential nature, change who you are. And death is a very obvious way of changing who you are. So with a becoming consequence there, the stakes at the end of the film become all about life and death, which is when they get completely surrounded in that hotel by all the corrupt police officers, and intention is all about, will they make it through the night? Will we die, or will we won't die? Now, you would think in most stories, well, that's what it always is, right? It's always life and death stakes at the end of a, a movie or at the end of a film. But if you look at Star Wars, Star Wars is a two-act structure, so it never really gets to that point. And you're not really concerned with life or death stakes at the end. That's not where your focus is on. The focus is on, will they be able to do what it is they need to do in order to stop the empire. It's like that that's where the focus is. It's not really on that that consequence doesn't come into as strong a position. And I think that has something to do with the structure of the story where it's just a two-act structure. When you have the three-act structure, I feel like the consequence comes up even stronger because you've had those first two movements. It's not like the two act where it's just the two movements. You've had those first two movements and now you're on the third and it's like, okay, where are we going to look? Now I'll look at the story consequence. And then you think, well, okay, well, it's Star Wars. That's not the only example in the world. Jim, let's try and find a different example. So you look through Unforgiven and you look through The Matrix. Those are both two act structures as well. And again, you're not going to have that third act in Unforgiven does not have life or death stakes at the end. You're not really concerned about money dying. It's not like where the tension is coming from. 
And certainly in The Matrix, you don't have that same tension either. It's not so much about that. It's like, has he learned enough to be able to overcome it? Like, that's where the, the tension comes from, to be able to overcome uh, The Matrix. It's, you're not really concerned with him dying, as opposed to something like Ellie Confidential, where it's all about, oh my god, we're, this is it, life or death stakes, can we get through the night? So perhaps maybe in this case, in a three-act structure, maybe structure can sometimes dictate content, because your focus is on that changing of one's nature towards the end. Well, then when you look at election, there's not really life or death stakes there, but there is definitely changing the essential nature of one when you think about whether or not they'll devolve into primitive caveman, which is how sadly Jim ends up at the end. That last, you know, they've been struggling again with the being and doing in the, in the first two movements. You know, will uh, both Tracy and Jim be able to maintain their roles as student and teacher respectively? Will they be able to respect each other? It's, will they be able to make, keep that line drawn between student-teacher relationships in order to get to the place where they can finally do, which, you know, after Jim kind of inspires Paul to run for election and really screws her plans over, it's like, you know, will the two of them be able to do to the other person what has been done to them? That's where the backstabbing and all the subversion and all that stuff goes on through the the student election for president. But then when you get to the Act 3 tension, it's will Jim and Tracy be able to maintain their essential natures and not devolve into ruthless Neanderthals? Tracy gets really close when she goes through and destroys all the posters, which I believe is the that Act 2 turn that goes into 3. But Jim himself tries his hardest not to you know devolve into this mumbling, slobbering Neanderthal, which unfortunately it, it turns out he ends up becoming... And then finally, I threw in Sideways there. I haven't actually quite finished it yet, but I wanted to get something that wasn't just uh, an obtaining story. So this is more about, you know, uh, David Cucieri did a great analysis of this film. It's one of our only, I think it's, uh, let's see, there's four out of 333 films now. It's only, it's one of four, which is a holistic time lock. And we're talking about holistic main characters. This is a holistic main character in a time lock story. Uh, because Jack's wedding is in a week. So that's the time lock. And then the Paul Giamatti character, he's extremely holistic. So it's a very weird feeling to that film. A very strange experience going through that narrative. And, you know, the central dramatic question for Sideways is, will Jack be a good man in time for his wedding? So he's a bit of a womanizer. His story prerequisites, or at least those story prerequisites in Sideways, are obtaining, and the requirement is becoming, and the consequence is doing. So it's very flipped from the, the typical one that you find in something like L.A. Confidential or Election. This is very much, you know, it's flipped. The, the conflict is coming from internal ways of thinking, not so much the external bits. So the Act 1 dramatic tension in Sideways is, will Jack get enough tail before his wedding day? That's the obtaining. It's very different. It's like, that's where the tension is. Like, can I get enough? Can I get enough? Can I get enough? And then in the Act 2 dramatic tension, will Jack burn the womanizing out of the system in time for his nuptials? That's the becoming. So it's a very interesting flip. Usually, you know, you go from the internal to the external. Here we're going from the external to the internal. So it's like, well, can I get enough? Can I get enough? And now I'm getting closer to the goal, right? So that's why it's moving the opposite direction. I'm going into becoming now. Can I change my essential nature? Can I burn through all that womanizing that I need? I apparently need? Can I be able to get through it? And then finally, the Act 3 dramatic tension, will Jack stop sleeping with other women? I mean, it's just basically flat out doing. Will he stop doing all that stuff. And that's because that consequence of doing works perfectly with the goal of being. Because if he can stop doing that, then he can be, and then that will resolve 
the overall story. It's a very different feel to it, but you can see it works along the same structure, the same, not so much the same narrative, the same story points are there, the same concepts of prerequisite, requirement, consequence, and goal, but the actual nature of those different appreciations are very different. Sideways is very much about the problems of uh, manners of thinking among people, whereas something like LA Confidential or Election are more about the problems of the things people do, like destroying campaign posters or even resorting to killing one another. So that's it for this week's podcast. Again, if you have any questions, please write to narrativefirst.com slash contact, and we'll answer them as soon as we can. Next week, we'll be looking at four-act structures and how to generate tension there. Hope you have a great week of writing, and we'll see you next time.